Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you very much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Auditorium two, good to see you guys. You look beautiful, and if you are watching on YouTube Live, you too are beautiful. Thanks for joining us there. Um, If you are visiting, especially glad to have you here, please stop by our Welcome Center, which is in the Commons over here near Auditorium One. We have a team there that would love to help you and serve you with any questions that you might have about life here at Fellowship Greenville. And if you are a member, or a regular, please feel free to go say hey to the team out at Next Steps, also in the comments over here in Auditorium One, and they can help you with your next step, whether that's membership or getting in a community group or an outreach or service opportunity, et cetera. Also, if you are visiting with us, one thing that we want to let you know about is that on Sunday mornings, we are usually preaching and teaching straight through entire books of the Bible. Like we want to read scripture the way that God gave it to us because we think that God is honored and God speaks clearly when we read his word like that. And we believe the Bible is God's story. It's not primarily rules to blindly obey or dogmas and doctrines to thoughtlessly acknowledge. Rather, it's God's story that tells the truth about God and his world in such a way that it invites us into relationship and partnership with God. And this approach to studying the Bible has us in the New Testament book of John on Sunday mornings. There are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, maybe you know that, and John has the most unique biography of Jesus. And the structure of how John tells the Jesus story is is fairly simple. So in John chapter one, he has this beautiful, powerful, poetic, Uh, prologue and introduction, and then in John chapter 21, he has an epilogue of sorts, and between the two, chapters 1 through 12 are like the first section of John, and chapters 13 through 21 are the second section, and in the first movement, we slowly see who Jesus is. It's not like a light switch, even for the disciples. They slowly start to get it, and who Jesus is actually gets him in trouble with the religious leaders of his day, and that trouble eventually leads to his death. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna finish chapters one through 12 by the end of May, and then we'll take a summer break and think about some other things, and then starting in the fall, we'll pick back up in John chapter 13. In John chapters 13 to 21, that second big movement, it's only one week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. Don't forget the road that led him there is the one that we're on now in which these religious leaders are so frustrated with what he's saying and what he's doing that in their minds, he has to be stopped. He can't say the stuff he's saying and get away with it, so we're gonna get him. That's what the religious leaders are thinking, and today we get to see that tension continue to build a little bit more in John chapter seven. If you'd like to go ahead and get there in your Santa Biblia, in your Bible, you can do it in the Bible that you can touch that has paper in it, like like this, the, the one that I love the most, or, no judgment here, judgment-free zone, or you can scroll and swipe there on your device Uh, However you get to John chapter seven, we would love for you to follow along today in your copy of the Bible. John chapter seven, we'll get there in a few minutes, I promise. Now, about 15 years or so ago, when I started to think about what it meant to be a pastor, I really felt 
that kind of tug on my heart from the Lord, I believe, and I started to learn new, fun, theological stuff, and I also started to learn that I didn't know all the answers. That's a disease most people have in their 20s. I'll never forget a single line that I heard 15 or so years ago that kind of stopped me in my tracks, and it, it started to reframe a lot of what I was thinking. And I can't remember if it was a book or in a sermon, because I'm sure it's been said different ways, but it shook me, like it shook me, it stopped me, deer in the headlights kind of thing, and it's the simple idea that some Jesuses should be rejected. You ever thought about it like that? Some Jesuses should be rejected. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. Life coach Jesus should be rejected, all right? Jesus' primary goal is not, sorry, to let you chase your dreams, He doesn't exist to coddle your latest whimsy or make you psychologically cozy all the time, all right? And this can make millennial and entrepreneurial Christians really sad and frustrated. But there's another one for the rest of us. This is another Jesus that should be rejected. Jesus that somehow agrees with nearly every tenant of your political party should be rejected. You're like, now wait a minute, preacher. Now listen, absolutely, Jesus believed that all of life was sacred, but he also said, go give all your money away to people who are in need and welcome the immigrants and welcome the refugees and render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And I know people from different political perspectives that try this move, right? And this one's actually uh, easier for millennials uh, and and sometimes for people who are Gen X or born before 1970, that's, that's, that's a little bit tougher. There's another Jesus that should be rejected and that's phobia Jesus. Jesus was never scared of people who were different than he was. You should never be scared of people who don't roll like you do. That's not Christ-like. But here's the deal. There are still so many people that reconstruct Jesus around bigoted ideas that they either knowingly or unknowingly inherited, and it's so sad and so hurtful to so many. Some Jesuses should be rejected. Now, for me, 15 or so years ago, this helped me explain a lot. Like I'm learning so much about Jesus, I'm learning so much about the Bible, but I would get confused and I would get frustrated when other people wouldn't share my excitement. My wife tells me that's just a problem I have at large in life, but I was really frustrated with this Jesus part of the thing. I'm like, come on. And then when I started to realize it, I was like, oh, these people are not believing the Jesus that I see here in the Bible. I started to realize that people were rejecting and accepting imaginary Jesuses and not the real one. Along these lines, Anne Lamont writes, you can safely assume that you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Hey, look, Jesus likes everything I like and he hates everything I hate. This is great, right? Meaning you can't, you're not allowed to pick and choose the things about Jesus that you like and then be like, well, not so much that because that's convicting. Like not, not that part of it. Listen, God made us in his image and it's the most backwards thing in the universe for us to try to make him in ours. And furthermore, regardless of whether they were orthodox and humble and sweet or abusive and neglectful, the starting point for how you understand Jesus cannot be your upbringing or your parents or your opinions or your feelings or what pop culture says. We need the real Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus of history, the Jesus who is God with skin on. That's what we need. We have to reckon with him and not whatever 
projection of him helps us cope most easily. Jesus is what it means to be truly and fully human. And so we have to understand him on his own terms and in his historical context. Like we have to get, <laughs> we have to get our hands and feet dirty with the dust of first century Palestine if we are to understand Jesus the way that scripture presents him. Tim Keller also has a great train of thought in which he says, if any educated person was to make a list of five or 10 people who most influenced the world, it is inevitable that Jesus of Nazareth would be on the list. Now I go, yeah, dude, I, I get that. But Keller goes further. He says, not only would he be on the list, he would also be the most unique person on everybody's list because of the claims that he made about himself and that others made about himself. And he proves this not just because of the swirling opinions about Jesus today, but because that's kinda always how it's been with Jesus, even in the New Testament. In fact, right, right in the middle of our passage is a statement that shows why so many people have so many different takes on Jesus. And we'll look at it in a second, but people were saying things like, no one ever spoke like this guy. Nobody ever talks like this, right? And this is part of why he's the most unique on the list. Aristotle, Confucius, Buddha, Da Vinci, Muhammad, Einstein, nobody said and did things like Jesus. And because of the exceptional nature of who he was and what he did and how people have followed him for 2,000 years, the question that lands on all of our doorsteps with authority is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Like, like what do you think about him? Are, are his claims legit? And, and if so, if that's the case, should anything in your life be different because that's true? And these aren't questions that we are free to sidestep. And my conviction is, how we answer questions like these is going to shape our identity, it's gonna define our purpose, determine our eternity, and influence every other question that life tries to throw our way. Like, <clears throat> I get it that some people might not jive with Christians or with Christianity or Christendom at large, but with Christ himself, that's the more substantial question. And we're not talking about culturally contingent versions of Jesus that should be rejected. We're talking about the real, resurrected Christ. What are you going to do with him? How does your life relate to his? That is what we have to think about today and hopefully think about every day. <clears throat> and this morning, John 7, 37 through 52 is going to help us and fuel our thinking about this question. John 7, 37 through 52. Also, uh, after I read, let's corporately declare our gratitude to God for the gift of Holy Scripture. I'll read the passage and then comes my line, which is the word of God for the people of God. And then comes your line in perfect hearty harmony Thanks be to God. You too, Auditorium 2. And if you're watching on YouTube Live and you do it, you get 500 spiritual points. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. What are you gonna do with Jesus? John 7, 37 to 52. Here we go. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not, <clears throat> not yet glorified. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, wait, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Didn't the scriptures say that Christ comes from offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. <clears throat> some wanted to arrest him, but no one <laughs> laid hands on him. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, uh, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd doesn't know that the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Now, <clears throat> last week, Charlie did a great job with all of John chapter seven, and I'm not gonna re-preach everything that he did, that everything that he covered, but the language here at the end of John chapter seven reminds me of John's main point. If you recall, John gives us a purpose statement for his entire Jesus biography in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, I write these things to you so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's what John wants. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you'll get life. So yes, the believing leads to the life, but watch this. You're not allowed to believe anything you want about Jesus. You're not allowed to in John's gospel. He can't just be your life coach because you think that's what you need right now. Not good enough. You must believe that he is who he said he was, that he is who John declares him to be. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that is the debate that's happening at the end of John chapter seven. Also, don't forget the setting. We are at the Feast of Booths, and this is a yearly Jewish festival that was to call to mind how they wandered around in tabernacles for 40 years after the Exodus and how God provided for them all along the way. <clears throat> and this festival included a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Out of the seven festivals, three of them, all the Jews, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, they traveled to Jerusalem, so this is one of the big three here. And they gathered together to remember their dependence on God and his grace and his provision. And our passage focuses in on a debate that happened on the final and last and climactic day of this festival. <clears throat> now, if you remember from last week, a few days before the last day of the festival, there were these little whisperings and these little rumors, little pockets of people murmuring and, and going, what do you think about this one? You? And it's, people were like, dude, he might be the Christ. He might be the Messiah. He might be the one. Could this Jesus guy be the thing, you know, that we've been waiting for? So all these little murmurings are happening and the religious leaders, they, they hear about this. They get, they get wind of this. And so when they do, because they're like, wait, wait a second, we, we call the shots around here. We say this is Messiah, not Messiah. That's our job. So when they hear about this, they issue what is the equivalent of basically a first century arrest warrant. That's what they do. 
They weren't gonna have a backwoods carpenter rabbi, whoever this guy is, they're not gonna have him stealing the show and distracting people. And I love this. Jesus finds out about the arrest warrant, right? <laughs> this is so good to me. Jesus finds out about it and knowing about it, <laughs> I love Jesus, knowing about it, he stands up at the most important time in the feast, the most important time of the whole week, the last day in verse 37, he says, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if you believe in me, and if you swear allegiance to me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's drawing on imagery from the feast, their traditions, and he's also drawing from the prophets of old. But also back in Exodus in the wilderness, they weren't looking for stagnant water. You might know this, stagnant water might get you in trouble, might kill you, right? That, that's not what they're looking for. But flowing water, aha, we can stay alive with flowing water. That could lead to life just like the water that God caused miraculously to gush out of the rock in Exodus 17 and in Numbers chapter 20. So Jesus here in 37, 38, and 39 is talking about life and true constant provision if you're believing in him. Here's what I love about Jesus. Yes, 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 Jesus knows that what he is saying is true. His invitation is real. He knows all of that. He is our great satisfaction. He knows that, that's why he's inviting people, like Charlie talked about last week. But, <laughs> Jesus also knows something else. He knows that when he does that, at the most important day of the feast, he's gonna stir the pot a little bit. Like, he knows, he knows people are gonna lose it. He knows, it, and that's one of the reasons why he does it. He is going to force people to answer the question, hey, what are you gonna do with Jesus? He knows that. In fact, after, the invitation in verses 37 to 39, I have seven question marks in my Bible, in the ESV, the English Standard Version that we preach from, in verses 40 through 52, and I've got them all highlighted in my Bible. Verse 41, 42, 45, 47, 48, 51, and 52 all have question marks. And these question marks represent people trying to understand how their lives relate to his. That's what they're doing. And just like there is today, there were different pockets of people trying to figure out Jesus way back then in the first century. So in verse 40, look in verse 40, you have people who are hopeful. They're like, this could be the prophet, the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. So they had a, a good opinion of Jesus. And some people in verse 41 said, oh, we're hopeful too, but we're hopeful that he's the Christ, the Messiah. And then you have people in 41 and 42 who are a little bit skeptical. They're like, now wait a minute. I thought the Messiah was gonna be da 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 and they just want to like fine tune the definition of Messiah. These are hyper uh, critical, maybe cynical, skeptical people. And then in verse 44, we have people that want to arrest him, but they're scared to arrest him because the, the, you know, like, the popular public opinion poll is kind of rising a little bit. They're scared that other people uh, might, might be upset <clears throat> if they arrest Jesus which honestly makes me wonder how many of us respond to Jesus the way we do because of other people's responses to Jesus, right? I know you can't like preach a whole message on that right here, but that is what's happening in verse 44. These people are responding to Jesus in a certain way because of how other people are responding to Jesus. Like maybe you roll like that sometimes, maybe you're like, hey man, I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of Jesus when you're around other pe some people, and then when you get near other people, you're like, I don't care that much. Like maybe that's how you do because you just want Jesus to be useful to you, right? But here's the deal, the Jesus of the Bible is worthy all the time and not just when it might seem advantageous for you. 
And then we find out that the super Jews, Pharisees and the chief priests, these religious elite guys, the super Jews sent some officers out into the crowds to get him. And these, these officers, they're not like trained Jewish police ready to use violence if they need to, like if it comes to that. That's not these guys. These guys are Levites. They're trained preacher boys. So they can do like prayers for you and like maybe offer a sacrifice, but these aren't like official Jewish police. And so when they come back without Jesus, the religious elite are very, very frustrated. These officers come back and the super Jews are super irritated. Look at verse 45. They go, well, where is he? You, you, you had one job. Come on, come on, what's your problem? Just say, hey, come over here. Like, it's not hard, right? And then the officers reply <clears throat> to the Pharisees, probably nervously, they're like, hey, uh, uh, boss, nobody in the world talks like this, all right? It kind of scared me a little bit, okay? They're, they're kind of nervous about the whole thing, and the Pharisees go, are you serious? You're believing the hype. You're believing what everybody says about him. Don't be deceived. This guy, this is blasphemy 101. Don't believe that guy. He's just, he's nonsense. <clears throat> and here's what I love. I love, you gotta feel it, I love the tension that's built, uh, building here. Some people are hopeful that he's prophet, hopeful he's Messiah. Some people are like, well, we're supposed to get him. We don't care, but we're supposed to get him. And they go like, we didn't get him. And the Pharisees are like, what's your problem? <clears throat> There's all these different pockets of tension building here. And here's the thing. John is doing this on purpose. You know why? He doesn't relieve the tension of the episode. Like in Acts, sometimes we're told at the end of a, a passage, this is how many people believed in Jesus. John doesn't say that right here. He, he, he leaves the ball in your court. He doesn't say, this is how many people followed him that day, this is how many people rejected him that day. No, it, look, the passage ends with basically a question. I think the passage ends with kind of two questions. One is personal and one is biblical. Look at verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? You know what that means in this context? Are you following Jesus too? Because he was known as the Galilean. And it also says, look at the rest of verse 52. Search and see if a prophet comes from Galilee. Which means go open your Bible and find out what it says. And these two kind of questions conspire to be, what are you going to do about the Jesus of the Bible? Not a Jesus made in your image. What are you gonna do about it? Also, and this is fun, the specific you being referred to in verse 52 is our good old friend Nicodemus from John <clears throat> chapter three, several months ago. Nicodemus in John chapter three, you remember the epic conversation. He comes to Jesus at night because he is one of the religious elite. He's a teacher of Israel, but he's really, really intrigued by Jesus. And he comes at night because he doesn't want anybody to see him. Now, <clears throat> At the end of John 7 here, all these people are bickering and fighting, the Pharisees and the officers, and they're going back and forth. And Nicodemus just kind of throws it out there in verse 51. Uh, guys, guys, uh, in our law, we should at least hear this guy out before we arrest him, right? <clears throat> Guess what? That is the most logical, simple, rational thing. And everybody gathered should be like, you know, Nick, you're right. No, 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 no. None of that happened. Because his colleagues are way too worked up and hostile to listen to reason. So they scoff at Nicodemus and they're like, yeah, you're probably gonna go follow him too, right? You, are you Galilean? That's what they say. That's verse 52. And so they kind of dismiss Nicodemus's rational putback. <clears throat> and again, here's what I love. It doesn't resolve that should make you happy, but no, you're a Westerner, and you're like, resolve the story. No, 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 John knows what he's doing. He goes, ball's in your court. 
your turn. What are you gonna do with Jesus, right? That's what he does with the seven question marks in between 40 and 52. Now, we're looking at a specific piece of bark on a specific tree right here, but don't forget John's entire forest. The primary thing he is trying to do is to get us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what's driving the whole book of John. That's what's explicitly driving our passage here. That's what the crowds and Nicodemus and other people are leaning into. Unless we presume on it, let's think for a minute about what Jewish messianic hope felt like. So what did the Jewish people think their Messiah would be? Who did the Jewish people think their Messiah would be? That's what we have to think about for a second. We talked about this a little bit in John chapter one. Very plainly put, Christ in Greek and Messiah in Hebrew are the same words and they mean king or they mean hero, the hero of God's story. The Hebrew verb masiach means to anoint or anointed one like an anointed king from David's line in Lion King when hippie monkey Rafiki holds up Simba and puts the weird grapefruit juice on his forehead. That is the most clear picture of what Messiah means. It means somebody who is anointed to reign over the land. That's what it means. And so you're welcome, Disney. Now, over time, here's the deal. 2,000 years ago, if you were a Jewish person, over time, some people had wanted the Messiah to be a political revolutionary. Some people wanted him to be a great warrior and overthrow the enemies of God's people. And some people wanted a priestly Messiah who would sympathize with them in their sin and have compassion on them in their brokenness. And in his own humble way, Jesus was each of these. He was king, but of an upside down kingdom. He came to overthrow enemies, but the enemies of sin and death. And he was the perfect priest, but he offered the perfect sacrifice not of a lamb, but of himself. Now, beyond these specifics, we know that Jesus as Messiah means that he is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Hebrew Bible. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, says that all of the promises of God, all of them, are yes in the Messiah. And we just confessed some of these things together. He is the seed of the woman, that will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He brings a better salvation and a more lasting rest than Noah. He is the offspring of Abraham that was truly sacrificed on a mountain to bring blessing to the whole world. Like Moses, he leads his people out of slavery. Like Samuel, he is our judge. Like David, he is our anointed ruler. He is who the prophets long to see. He is our true home, our true return from exile. He is God dwelling in the midst of his people and the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1. And by virtue of his death for sin and his triumphant resurrection, he is the world's true Lord. And he has promised that at his return, he will make everything sad come untrue for those who are his. Now that's, I love that, that's what Messiah means. But some of you might go, okay, I, I see that, I see the beauty of that, but it also feels like a lot, and I still have some questions about how this piece relates to this piece, or maybe you think, well, I have to memorize the Old Testament to know what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, some of that might be a little convoluted for you, and if that's the case, I'm gonna put it 
Super, super simple. So simple that it hurts. Are you ready? Here we go. This is so wonderful, good, and simple. Jesus as Messiah means, ready? If he's the king, you don't have to be. Breathe a little, right? If he's the king, you don't have to be. You don't have to try to rule the world. You don't even have to try to rule your own life or be in control all the time. You can trust him and follow him and know that he is good and loving. You don't have to multitask and micromanage to feel like you've got your stuff together. You don't have to curate meaning and purpose on your own. Feel the beauty and power and simplicity of this. If Jesus is the hero, you don't have to be. You can chill out a little bit, right? And you can trust and obey him as Lord and Messiah. There's a great and glorious beauty and simplicity to that that we need to know, especially because that's what John wants. That is John's purpose. I write these things that you will believe that he is the Christ. And that is what people are fighting about at the end of John chapter seven. And because our passage ends the way that it does, with the ball in our court left to make a decision about Jesus and about whether or not we're gonna follow him, I'm reminded of the famous passage from C.S. Lewis uh, along these lines. And Lewis uh, admits that he stole some of these ideas from G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, which is, those are some 20th century British writers if you wanna go explore. In Mere Christianity, book two, chapter three, Lewis closes the chapter by saying that we're not allowed to just say that Jesus was a good teacher. He's like, we're not allowed that. And here's how he explains all of that. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or or else he would be the devil of hell. So you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. And the super seed version of that is verse 46. Nobody ever spoke like this guy. What are we gonna do? Lewis is pushing us just like John. What are you gonna do with Jesus? And to Do nothing is to irrationally refuse him because merely thinking that he had some good ideas like Aristotle will not cut it when you consider his claims. So either he's a liar and he has led the most impressive deception movement in history or he's a lunatic like somebody who goes, hey, I'm scrambled eggs, right? That's another option. And also since Lewis, somebody has added that maybe he's just a legend. He is an exaggeration of the early church, which doesn't stand under careful historic scrutiny. Or he is Lord. He's the Messiah, just like he claimed to be. And I find Lewis's logic pretty compelling. But this is crucial and you gotta get this. Lewis's logic doesn't settle 
anything. You wanna know why? Because the devil knows that Jesus is Messiah. The devil knows that Jesus is God, James 2. Even the demons recognize that. So Lewis's logic is not sufficient. And this means that Jesus as Messiah is not merely about categorical or intellectual recognition. The reality of who he is must be met with faith. It must be met with desire. That's why Jesus says, if anybody is thirsty, come and drink. So do you desire him? Do you want Christ? Do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus, the real Jesus? I hope you do. And think about this. In the same way, you gotta get this, in the same way that it does no good to be thirsty for a wrong view of Jesus that should be rejected, you got it? It does nobody any good to be like, I do desire, but I desire the wrong view of Jesus. That does no good. Likewise, it does no good to recognize the right view of Jesus and then not pledge yourself accordingly. This is an invitation to eternal life. This is a bidding to intimacy with God. This is a call to share in Jesus' family and Jesus' mission. And if that's the case, why would we not respond in happy, humble faith? Why would we not respond with hopeful, trusting allegiance? It just makes so much sense. Come, drink deeply. Like I know what it is for me as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, as a husband and as a dad, I know, I know what holds me back. I know what sins and proclivities and blind spots hold me back, but I don't know what's holding you back from drinking deeply. Like maybe you're like, well, I mean, that makes a little sense, but I just need some more evidence. I got some fossil questions and stuff. Like maybe you're just like, no, I need more proof. M maybe that's you. Or maybe you think that you, you, you can still do a better job of running your life than the one who killed death. You're like, no, no, I got this. Or maybe you've been responding to Jesus the way you do because of how other people around you respond to him. Jesus did not say, come if, you're, if your mama's thirsty. He didn't say, come if your friends are thirsty. Jesus didn't say, come even though your professors aren't thirsty. This is a personal invitation that lands on your doorstep to believe in him. Charlie said a couple weeks ago <clears throat> that faith doesn't mean you understand everything Jesus says, but that you entrust yourself to everything he is. That's money, that's so, so rich and good. Faith in him, thirsting for him, is more about who he is than what we feel. It's more about who he is than what we want in the moment. And that is precisely what Jesus wants, for us to confess our need of him. That's what John, the apostle, wants. That's what Lewis wants. That's what I want, that we would all fully entrust ourselves to Jesus as the Christ. Dr. Evie Rayu was a mid-20th century literary scholar and translator of the classics like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, he also wrote poetry, and he started the, uh, the book, the book classics uh, called The Penguin Classics. If you go to Barnes & Noble, they're everywhere, so you can thank Dr. Rayu for that. Uh, he started uh, that collection. And when Dr. Rayu was about, around 60 years old, he had been an agnostic for his entire life, and his publishers asked him if he would do a translation of the four gospels for the sake of literature and history. 
And so he took to the task for academic purposes and admitted upon starting the unique perplexity of shifting from ancient Homeric Greek to the kind of common Greek of the Gospels. He, he actually kind of said that he liked it and appreciated it. As he began to translate, he commented that there was a real modest beauty to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially to John's Gospel. Also, as he began his translation, his son commented, it will be interesting to see what my father makes of the Gospels. It will be still more interesting to see what the Gospels make of my father. And after about a year of undertaking his translation, Dr. Rayu came to faith in Jesus. And pastor and fellow scholar John Phillips uh, was once interviewing Dr. Rayu and asked him about his translation. Dr. Rayu, did you get the feeling that the material you were working with was extraordinarily alive? And Dr. Rayu replied, I did. And that feeling was deep. And my work on those texts changed me. And to me, those texts bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. Now that's a guy who is a born and trained skeptic and critic. It's his job to be analytical. And he was compelled, compelled to entrust himself to Jesus. But who do you say that he is? Just like John 7, 43, there will always be a division among the people about him. But you can't piggyback on somebody else's agnosticism or somebody else's faith. You have to do your own reckoning with Christ, your own believing. So what should be different about you if he is truly Lord and you are truly thirsty? How does your life relate to his if that's the case? I got some pictures for you that have been helpful for me, and maybe you've uh, seen this before, but look uh, up at the screens. <clears throat> so imagine this circle is your life. I drew that circle with this cup right here, right here. Isn't that great? That's how kind of high tech we are here. So this circle is your life, and you start including things in your life to help your life make sense. You start making things a part of your story so that your story will have meaning, and you've got friends, and you put your friends in the circle. You've got your hobbies, and you put your hobbies and your preferences and your opinions in the circle. <clears throat> maybe you get married, and then you throw your new little family in the circle, or maybe you go, you know what? Let's have kids, and this is my job, and here are the opinions I have. All those things are in the circle. Everything is in the circle that makes you you, that makes your story work and go and click and tick and stuff, right? And somewhere along the way, you realize that you need Jesus to be a part of your life for your life to make sense, and so you do that. And there, there's Jesus right there, he's a red cross today. Now, you invite Jesus into your life because he offers forgiveness and grace. And you go, I have to have him, I have to. And maybe you're here today and you've never responded to Jesus' offer of forgiveness and grace and salvation. Maybe you're, you're trying to do like the autopilot of survival mode. I know a lot of us try that. But you also know that you can't keep up that kind of autopilot survival mode life. There's gotta be more than this chat. And if that's you, today, right now, even where you sit, wherever you are, you can trust Jesus for real, substantial, eternal life 
with him and his people forever. You can do that right now. It doesn't have to be pomp and circumstance. And in fact, if that's something that you want to do, we'd love to talk to you about that. We have a prayer team after every service in front of the stage that would love to chat with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But let's say that you have done that and you have a relationship with God because of Jesus. So here's the question right here. Here it is, here it is. Is this paradigm correct? Is inviting Jesus to be a part of your life so that it will make sense wrong? Now, wait a second, preacher. (laughs) The answer is that it's not wrong by what it affirms, but it is wrong if it denies something greater. And here's what I mean. I've got another circle up here for you. There it is, there's another circle. Imagine this circle is God's life, all right? And in order for God's purposes to come to pass and in order for his story to quote unquote make sense, he includes things in his life and in his story like rocks and trees and skies and seas, flowers, hours, mountains and fountains, birds and whales, bugs and snails, light and love, squirrels and doves, time and space, diversity, race, Galaxies, atoms, laughter, truth, beauty, morality, music, sex, justice, art, and a million other glorious things that we could spend an eternity studying. And then, out of sheer and pure, unconditional mercy, even while we were his enemies, Paul says, he invites you to be a part of his story, right? Through the gospel of Jesus, he calls you to be a part of his own life, and that is baffling, right? We don't deserve this. His welcoming us into his life is pure grace. But watch, watch, watch. If this is the paradigm, then what becomes of your hobbies? What becomes of your marriage? What becomes of your friends and your preferences and your opinions? It's not that they cease to exist. Rather, in this paradigm, Jesus is now king and Lord over those things. And we get to joyfully submit all of it to him. That's what it means to follow him. This is how our life should relate to his. And it is as impossible as it is wonderful. Now, yes, Jesus being the Messiah definitely has a lot to do with him being the fulfillment of everything that was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Yes, yes, that's the debate in verses 40 through 52. But if you continue to press on what this means, and you continue to read what life should be like for Jesus followers, it means that responding in thirsty faith to his invitation is to surrender all of life to him. It means you want your story lost in his. It means that you shouldn't be able to tell your story without telling his. And again, I don't know all of you here this morning and I don't know where you are, maybe kinda like Charlie mentioned a while back, Maybe you're still seeking like Nicodemus and you're still trying to figure it all out. Or, or maybe you're a little bit more skeptical and you, you've got some questions. And if that's the case for you, I would say make sure that you're dealing with the, the real Jesus and not a made up one. Or, or maybe you're here and you go, I already love him. I love Jesus and what he has done for me and, and who he is. And you want to more faithfully and passionately yield your life to him, follow him, obey him, trust him, know him, share him, extend his love, grace, and mercy. Here's what I love. It doesn't matter which category you're in or where you fall on that seeking spectrum. What I love is that Jesus' invitation to everybody is the exact same. If anybody is thirsty, let him come and drink deeply. Every day, no matter who you are, come and drink 
and you'll have life forever. Living waters, the fountain of living waters. Nobody ever, ever spoke like this man, ever. But more supremely, nobody ever lived and died like this man because he lived and died and lived again, undead, right? Definitively, decisively proving that he is the Christ. The well of living water that never runs dry. Why would we not drink fully and freely? Fellowship Greenville, what are you going to do with Jesus? However you respond, know first what he has done for you. This is our gospel. He loves you. He loves you. He died for your sins. And he rose again to usher in God's new creation. And he daily invites you to drink of grace. Come, if you're thirsty, and drink. And today I pray that you're looking to the real Jesus for real life and nowhere else. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you that you are the risen king, the hero, the Messiah. Holy Spirit, please, please, please make us ever impressed with Jesus. May he always be awesome and trustworthy in our minds, please. And may we always seek to have our stories and our identities lost in his. And Jesus, we praise you and thank you and love you beyond words for the fact that hope and peace are secure in you because of your death and resurrection. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You're the best. Amen.